0: My name is Skolk Mietling, and this is the Mechanical Inc. Podcast. A podcast about open source, the open web, sustainability, and those who want to make the web and the world a better place. Hey, Deepak, and welcome to the Mechanical Inc. Podcast.
1: Thanks, Skolk. It's an honor to be here.
0: Yeah, so... um, Just going to let the cat out of the bag. I do work at Boxy HQ, um, but that's not why you're here. (laughs) Um, I just think the project is is very interesting, and it totally fits with the audience that listen to this podcast. And I thought it'd be super cool to bring you on here to ask some questions I still have about Boxy, even though I work at Boxy. Um, And then just let the wider audience know about all the great work that we're doing at Boxy. and. Some history, some of the history, because that's some of some of the the gaps that I still have in my knowledge. Some just learning about some of the history. But before we dig into BoxyHQ itself, um, if you could tell us a little bit more about you, um, your history in the tech world, and open source in general.
1: Uh, absolutely, uh, obviously, fantastic to be here. You know, we love open source at BoxyHQ, uh, and that, that's why I'm here more more so than you know being from BoxyHQ. Um, my background uh, technologist all my life uh, still love to do you know hands-on technical stuff whenever I can. Um, I, I started uh, in the early 2000s when you know there was no cloud. Uh, we had to go into a data center to be useful. probably took about a week at least to sort to, sort out a rack somewhere. Uh, there used to be no internet. At the data center, so you kind of had to hang hang close to the window, uh, figuring out you know Linux commands from your colleague, and then kind of come back and type it into the into the terminal. Uh, so that's the kind of infrastructure world I kind of started my career in, uh, which is fantastic because you then it then you know it's meant that I truly have that you know, full stack experience all the way from uh, infrastructure down to kind of more uh, front end. UI, UX work as well. Um, I grew up in Bangalore, India, um, you know, like pretty much the Silicon Valley of, uh, of India. Uh, I got hooked to, you know, computers early on. My dad kind of uh, bought one because he kind of sensed that it's the future, which is, I think, you know, fantastic hindsight. Um, and although it was technically for my older brother, he wasn't that keen at that point. Uh, so it, it, that just meant I had a lot of time in front of the computer. So, you know, installing Windows, Linux, whatnot, uh, messing around with it, uh, trialing things. And then I, I just figured out, OK, there's something called programming. So that's, um, that's Visual Basic was how I started. Uh, and then soon after that, we started that at school as well. Uh, so I was 16 when I kind of got introduced to it. Uh, so that's kind of the genesis of, you know, my introduction into the tech world, and pretty much I, I then knew that uh, I wanted to sit and solve puzzles all day. So that's that's kind of how I got into uh, into this field and then went on to do a computer engineering course in, in Singapore. Uh, and then as luck happened, some seniors there were doing this thing called a startup. So that's how I kind of got the startup bug from there. Uh, and that's the great thing about startups, where right? you learn things very quickly. It's like an accelerated course. So going from just about knowing how to program to kind of having to build things that were used in the real world, that was quite a uh, quite a good throw into the deep end. Uh, and you know, from there, I worked at much bigger companies like Opera Software, Thomson Reuters. Uh, most recently, I was a CTO at a cybersecurity scale-up before starting BoxHQ in late 2021.
0: Amazing. I didn't know that you went to Singapore to, to study.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was at NTU, which is a fantastic university. Singapore was quite interesting. I obviously wanted to be in the US, but uh, immigrating to the US is not easy. Or definitely was much harder like in the early 2000s, uh, plus the cost. So, you know, Singapore was a fantastic sort of middle ground, uh, still close to home and, you know, at that point, they were also kind of inviting talent from across Asia. Uh, and from an infrastructure perspective, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty close to, you know, Western world. So. Um, being in Asia is, is kind of the gateway into most of the Asian countries. So uh, that's how I kind of ended up there, purely by accident. But uh, I absolutely loved the experience there. Uh, the only... The, the only thing back then was uh, product. I mean, I always wanted to work in product, but back then everything was kind of more. It's changed a lot now, both in India and in Singapore. But it was very much kind of the services oriented world, uh, back office, slash service services. So, uh, but still a great place to be in to kind of pick up all the those uh, foundational skills.
0: Yeah. So, why Boxy HQ? What made you what made you start, boxing? What was the catalyst that, that told you, like, this is the thing I want to do next?
1: So my career has been about, you know, taking prototypes and kind of scaling that up. Uh, you know, I've done this multiple times. And what generally happens from uh, taking something that works to or proves that something works uh, to something that, you know, much larger companies want to use. Uh, And I've always been in the B2B space, so dabbled a bit with B2C, but B2C is kind of where my uh, interest is. And what that means is, you know, you kind of have to go through a whole bunch of um, additional um, uh, layers of, you know, additional protection in order to make your product more secure. Uh, And that's kind of what I've done throughout my career, you know, taking... Uh, taking a prototype that works and kind of saying, okay, we can actually go up market now. Uh, And most recently as a CTO at uh, Redshift, a cybersecurity scale up here in London, um, that meant, you know, all of that uh, responsibility was under my engineering team. And I realized that, you know, from the time you start thinking about it to building it, to kind of maintaining it, and then supporting your customers on this, we were spending a lot of time on, you know, truly undifferentiated features, uh, not go to the product you needed to make the sale, but, you know, uh, and of course it's used, but it's not foundational to, to your core product. Um, so then that's what got me thinking about, and we were spending a lot of time on this, right? Not just building, maintaining, but also then supporting because you kind of just have enough time to make it work, but never enough time to truly make it uh, work well. Uh, and those things change over time as well right so the requirements are not quite obvious in the beginning and as you kind of get a bit more uh, sense and maturity around the the requirements then things change Uh, so that was kind of the catalyst to you know that got me thinking uh, me and my co-founder why isn't there a better solution to this do we have to build this Um, internally? Can this be outsourced? So that was kind of the genesis. Why isn't there a Stripe-like approach to solving this problem? Um, And the interesting thing was a lot of it ties back into security, because that's why you kind of have to do these things. Um, And that's not an easy thing to do, especially for developers who are kind of more focused on uh, business logic, getting the core product to work, thinking about scaling there. Uh, and thinking about more competitive, you know, enterprise features, so to speak. So that was, you know, the genesis of uh, BoxyHQ and why we exist today.
0: So you said in the beginning that you're here more because of open source than just the fact that you're from BoxyHQ, which is very true. Um, open source is core to to BoxyHQ. Like pretty much everything we do is on GitHub available for anybody to contribute to, to use, to self-host. We'll talk about some of the different options, different ways you can choose to deploy Boxy. But um, why did you, I mean, maybe it's a silly question, but why did you think that this was the way to go? Why Why is open source and community so important? And then moreover, why did you decide, seeing that this is a business, um why did you decide to go with the apache 2 license as opposed to some of the others that companies tend to pick these days like the business source license from HashiCorp, that kind of thing
1: yeah yeah uh so i mean in in a nutshell box hq we uh we give you building blocks for what is known as enterprise readiness that is you're a product that wants to sell into the enterprise and have to go through a bunch of their checklist features, uh, like enterprise single sign-on, which is about logging into your web application on the back of uh, identity providers like Okta, Azure, um, and there's a bunch of you know, the, uh, 20-odd providers who provide this service. Uh, sometimes bespoke solutions as well. You know There are a lot of open source tools that are picked up. And used a single sign-on solution. So we help connect with all of those systems. Uh, directory sync, complementary to that, helps you provision, deprovision users, especially for larger companies where uh, you're onboarding, let's say, 80 people across your product, as an example. Um, audit logs, which is about providing security logs for your product, uh, crucial events that happen typically. On the back of you know having to have compliance around certain things like access logs, uh, knowing that if something were to go wrong, you can go back in history and look at what exactly happened. Um, and then uh, we're also deeply thinking about privacy, uh, data regulations. So we're building a privacy wall that gives you the building blocks to kind of safeguard sensitive data as you as you scale up. Um, so given, given you know, that's the kind of landscape we're in, uh, very close to infrastructure. So when we started thinking about this problem deeply, uh, we truly thought about, you know, and I had gone through kind of this problem uh, multiple times. And the first thing you do is go out there and see what's, if there's anything you can pick up and use. So that way open source is, uh, One of the ways that, you know, easy ways that developers like to evaluate products uh, because they don't have to speak to anyone. There's no like, you know, pushy sales messages going on. Uh, You can just truly go and see if it works. Um, Once you've kind of made that decision, then you can come back and think about the other things on top. So so that was kind of the, the motivation to make this open source. We were very close to infrastructure. We knew how developers and sort of technical decision makers think about this. Uh, Open source is typically a very uh, common way for them to go out and evaluate this and think about the whole build versus buy paradigm. Uh, Should I be building this internally? Or is this uh, undifferentiated enough that I can go out and pick up something and then tune it to what I need, right? So... That was basically, uh, you know, our motivation around this to make it truly open source, infrastructure-wise. Uh, and then, you know, we we think about a lot of the application layers, but that usually sits on top of the infrastructure pieces we provide. Uh, so that was our thinking here. Open source is a way to be discovered, and then you know the rest of it, everything else is kind of uh, way standardized, right, in terms of what a SaaS company would build. Uh, we also have a SaaS solution, so that's the typical way in you know, most open source companies kind of evolve. Um, but I had one more key insight, which was kind of very important for me, which kind of uh, led us down the open source path. Um, I, of course, was very familiar with this. You know, as I mentioned, I started with Red Hat, um, which you know back in the days, going from uh, Windows to Linux is, was well, not an easy path, right? But as a developer, you kind of, it's very easy to jump that barrier. Uh, but the fact that, you know, all of that was open source, you know, everything was out there. You got it for free, effectively. You didn't have to pay a penny. Um, and what that meant was, you know, you're starting to then abstract away complexity, right? Um, not so much, not so much in the sense that you're not responsible for it, but you become responsible for only a fraction of the interface there. Uh, and that's how, you know, most things build over time. You stack things on top of each other, and then you have this uh, wonderful, you know, software working for you uh, without, without you having to uh, dive into every specific layer, which makes it impractical for you to build anything of value. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So having done that, you know, it, was, it, was, it was then sort of became a no-brainer decision for us. Um, let developers decide the whole build versus buy, and we also knew we had to educate them on this whole build versus buy. Why should you not build? Why are we better? But that all kind of comes after they've kind of you know discovered us, evaluated us, um, and have had time to independently think about us rather than you know us pushing down um our own agenda on top of them. So that was the main motivation, you know, kind of how developers think and buy things today. Very much uh you know open source discovery. Plus where would be where we would be useful in their tech stack is, you know, being able to lift and shift us, put us into places where traditional SaaS solutions, closed source solutions cannot kind of go in. Um, so that was kind of our, you know, strategy around this. Um, and interestingly, why Apache 2? We, you know, been dabbling with licenses my entire career. Uh, and we knew, you know, we had to have our own paths to the enterprise at some point of time. You know, that's the way to monetize open source. And Apache 2 is quite close to MIT. I mean, they're, all, they're both very flexible. Uh, but Apache 2 is from a legalese perspective, a lot more Uh, enterprise-friendly. It's it's super flexible, right? You can do anything you want with it. There's absolutely no obligation. Uh, And there's also nothing that ties you back to it from a pure, um, in in the sense that if I pick up an Apache 2 license product and plug it in, uh, I don't have to be answerable to anyone, right? Including the creators. Um, So that, that, I think, gives a lot of flexibility for how people want to use us. Uh, it, it also means for us, there's an additional, we have to show that value, right? Otherwise, why would they buy anything on top of this? Um, so anything you look at from a purely commoditized point of view, Apache 2 kind of sits there for us. We want to make this you know, free and affordable for um, early-stage startups that's not that's not who we want to monetize and you know as they grow the other needs kind of come in and that's where we go beyond Apache two without trying to mix it up right in the in the sense that uh changing this license or kind of you know modifying it for us that boundary between what is free, which is on Apache two um, that could have been on MIT as well right but it was just a choice between making it more uh, enterprise friendly and at the same time, we were quite clear about what is then not under Apache 2, which is our enterprise edition license, um, and those just sit on top. Uh, you know, 99% of the startups don't need that, which gives us a good distinction between what is free and commodity and what is uh, you know, the open core features that we can monetize on the back of a bespoke enterprise edition license. No, that was largely our thinking around this, uh, and we obviously uh, we were fortunate enough to start at a time when all of the, you know, the other licenses you mentioned had kind of come out controversial, of course. Uh, they all had their own reasons, but ultimately, you know, if you think about open source ethos, it's about giving things out right without any um, without any obligations that tie back to you um so that's where we wanted to start and you know we did we didn't want to change that and kind of you know be open source but not really open source um you know you see a lot of that out there as well but that was not kind of our uh strategy around this
0: yeah that's great now i mean a lot of the llms i think um people have learned that there's this thing called open source friendly which means it's it's not truly truly open source It, it like it just walks the line very, very carefully. Um, but, if, but, it, but it's so easy to spot because, I mean, the open source definition is pretty clear. It's not a convoluted document of 100 different things. It's like pretty much 10 things. And if you ad- adhere to them, it's open source. If you don't, it's not. That's pretty simple. So, yeah. But it, it makes sense about Apache v uh, MIT, for example.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's a very it's a very uh, marginal differences between them, right? It's just that um, for a lot of the larger companies who kind of gone through the whole thing and have, you know, legal counsel inside that looks at this, Apache 2 is definitely more friendly for them um, in terms of adoption. In fact, they all have checklists, right, that developers kind of have to go through um, to even use something, even though that's free and, you know, open source. Uh, so it definitely helps there, uh, shows them that, you know, we're uh, that the open source product, if they truly wanted to use it on, on their own, they can. Um, and what this effectively also means for us is, you know, we've got to be uh, from a pure monetization perspective, that value creation has to be from our side. Right. Uh, ultimately, the burden is on us. right? It's, that's the way it should be. Um, and of course, there's always this fine line between, as an open source company, are you giving away too much for free? Uh, where are the levers where you know you kind of go from being free to being, uh, to you know that commercial journey? Right, when do when does someone have to pay for you? Um, so for us, that those boundaries have become more clear as we progress, and that's why we said you know the foundation has to be Apache Two, and then anything on top we can start to separate them out. Um, And again, you know, when people self-host us, uh, it's all controlled by feature flags, uh, uh, which is all off by default. So they're not violating anything by, even though some of the code might be, you know, uh, and that's what we've separated out, right, as the enterprise edition. But just self-hosting it is not in violation of anything. Uh, it's only when they turn on the feature and any way to turn on the feature, they have to talk to us. So at that point, we know, um, you know, how to guide them.
0: Yeah, perfect. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think one of the questions that I've been asked since I talked to some of my friends and stuff and said, I'm joining Boxy. And they had a look at the website and they were like, but wait a minute, is it like Okta? And I'm like, no, kind <laughs> of, but not really. And it's like, so then why would I use Boxy and not Auth0? And I was like, okay, let me explain. But I'm not going to explain. I'm going to ask you, so why not Auth0 or Okta? Like, how is Boxy HQ different? And if you think about like somebody maybe, like, we, like you mentioned, like an early stage startup that's starting to scale, they found some market uh, product market fit, and they're now looking at enterprise or enterprises starting to look at them. Where in this whole cycle does Boxy step in and how is it different or how does it play nicely with Auth0, Octo, all of those folks?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely very confusing, especially the term single sign on because it means a bunch of things. Uh, so if we start kind of just uh, refining that a bit. So single sign on effectively, you know, fundamentally just means you get access to systems on the back of just one. Um, login that you have somewhere, right? Uh, in in the old world, this used to be like your Windows, right? You got into a desktop, you had a Windows uh, username, password, and that was pretty much. Then you had access to all the software you had, but that was all pre-installed, or you could install it um, on your desktop. Now that everything's sitting in you know on the web in the cloud, it just means. Uh, you end up creating multiple identities, you know, multiple accounts in places, uh, which is fine as a user, but for a, if you think about an IT admin or the compliance team within an enterprise, major pain for them, right? The the whole SaaS brawl, uh, not an easy, easy task for them, uh, extremely tedious to even know uh, what they call the shadow IT, right? So single sign-on from a pure, uh, let's say, Identity provider perspective is that typically enterprises will have some kind of a, a single identity provider they use. Okta is an example. So Okta is what you would classify as a SSO provider. So they give you all the tools that you need to create user accounts for your employees, provision them with the right set of permissions, uh, and then you know, kind of give them access to various systems. So that's not what we do. We are not an identity provider by any means. Uh, we sit on the other side, which is known as the service provider. Um, um, and what the service provider effectively does is the one providing a service, in this case, a SaaS application or a web application. Uh, and then we help bridge the two, right? If, if you're building, let's say, um, um, a CRM, and you've now taken off, you kind of, um, uh, you know, CRM.com now wants to be used by a large enterprise. They say, I need single sign-on. So CRM.com would now have to go and build out that, that scaffolding, that infrastructure into that product. Um, so we are the alternative where instead of building all that on their own, they then use us and we bridge across to Okta. Uh, or Azure Active Directory, or Ping Identity, or you know the open in the open source world there's Keycloak which is quite popular, or Shibboleth. So they all are what you would classify as the identity providers, and we become the proxy between the service provider and the identity provider. So we're helping CRM.com allow their enterprise customers to use Okta and then log into CRM.com. Um, so for all practical purposes, you can think of us as a uh, as a virtual OAuth 2.0 or virtual OpenID Connect um, provider, but just that we don't hold user identities or user management or any of the authentication traditional authentication related stuff that OAuth zero, for example, provides. Um, we're very much focused on just that niche, right? Enterprise single sign-on only. Um, and of course, auth also provides something like this, but they're crazy expensive. So we also come with that uh, additional advantage of being uh, great value for money. You know, we're with our paid uh, plans. We're way more affordable, uh, for, especially for an early stage startup. So so that's kind of where we fit in. We're very much uh, that proxy between the two uh, we're not at all like Okta. We're we have some overlap with Auth0, but again, don't entirely do everything that Auth0 does because our focus is on the security building blocks and not purely authentication or just authorization or any of you know the those pieces.
0: I wonder if you want to unpack a little bit because I think a lot of people use the words authentication and authorization. Uh, You know interchangeably and it's not really an interchangeable concept so if you want to maybe dig into those two
1: yeah absolutely so uh one more thing about single sign-on to clear out is uh single sign-on can also mean if you are a multi-product company you might want single sign-on to glue together your you know your various products right so uh an example is atlassian they provide a whole range of products but they've got their own single sign-on solution uh, which then federates access to, you know, Trello and Jira and a whole bunch of other products that they use. Uh, so we get confused a lot for that as well, you know, once technically we can offer that, that's not kind of hardcore at the moment. Uh, so those are largely the three, you know, segments of SSO and we fit into just the service provider bracket. Um, kind of moving on to authentication versus authorization. Uh, it's actually very straightforward. You will see the shortened uh, terms as well. Authentication is uh, authn, A-U-T-H-N, and authorization is authz, A-U-T-H-Z, just to kind of distinguish the two. But uh, fundamentally very different concepts. Authentication is about how you gain access to a specific uh, you know, system out there. Uh, and you need that because, you know, web is inherently insecure. It was never built kind of, uh, well, no one knew it would take off this way. Right. So what they built was just a protocol for interconnectivity. And then they realized, oh, we can build a lot of, uh, interesting things on top. So authentication is a way for you to say, I'm Deepak and I need access to your system now please verify me and traditional ways you provide a username password because you're signed up at the system at some point um, and now with you know single sign-on providers you can federate it federate that away you can say uh, okta knows me so please use okta or google knows me so please use google uh, and verify who i am so it's a way for you to say i'm deepak i'm verifying that by giving you some credentials You then verify that and say, okay, this is Deepak. uh, And then you're given access to the system. So that's basically authentication. Authorization is after authentication, typically. Uh, And authorization means now that you're in the system, what can Deepak do? Uh, If he's an admin, he can do everything. But if he's not, then he should only do uh, a subset of what is allowed. Uh, So that's largely the distinction between the two. Uh, They do get mixed up because even the protocols themselves are kind of, uh, you know, like OAuth 2.0 was actually for authorization, but is used for authentication Um, because the OAuth 2.0 was because, you know, uh, web took off, social networks took off. And then you said, uh, I need to know what this person can do on my system. So that's why you have, if you look at the scopes within OAuth 2.0, that was kind of the genesis for that, right? Saying these are all the scopes that a user is given and that's what they can do. Anything outside that is not allowed because you started federating away, uh, like Facebook wanted access to your app, but you don't want to give Facebook the entirety of your app. So it had to ask you, okay, I'm going to use your user profile, your email, but nothing else. So that, that actually is what OAuth 2.0 was for, because before that, uh, the very popular enterprise protocol SAML, which is what we help kind of uh, demystify, uh, that is purely about getting access to B2B systems, not applicable in a B2C context, and that's why OAuth 2.0 kind of became the successor. Uh, but in the B2B world, you know, it's, it's, SAML is still the most popular one uh, based on XML, which, you know, a lot of the more modern web developers haven't even encountered. Uh, and that's what makes it hard and tedious. So, uh, so yeah, so authentication authorization always gets mixed up, but fundamentally two different concepts. Um, but technically because OAuth 2.0 also knows who you are, Mm. it's used as an authentication protocol as well.
0: Mm. Okay. Okay. Uh,
1: and and actually, OpenID Connect was is the successor of OAuth 2.0. It's built on OAuth 2.0 to give you the additional authentication mechanisms. But uh, in many ways, OAuth 2.0 also does that. So when you log into Google today um, from another app, that's effectively usually using OAuth you know, 2.0 protocol.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, that explains it very well. Thanks. So, and you mentioned SAML, and I was going to ask about that. So I think that is one of the value adds of Boxy, right? Is it takes that complexity away. Like you said, like... Exactly. Most people that has only joined the web development community in the last 10 years or so would be like, soap, that's something you use in the bathroom. What does that have to do with my computer? (laughs) And, um, you know, like XML, we don't use XML anymore, right? But... With SAML, those things are still very relevant.
1: Absolutely. Um, So SAML was, I mean, it's all evolution, right? You had Windows logins and a protocol called Kerberos, which was basically a more secure way to give you logins to desktops, uh, which could then be controlled at a central place, like an IT admin. Um, So ultimately, all these protocols are about giving control to an admin somewhere to better manage, uh, you know, both authentication and authorization. Uh, so that's kind of been the evolution. And when SAML started, XML was the, the, you know, the most popular way to interchange data effectively. Uh, that's why you see HTML is kind of way XML based as well. Uh, that grew out of, you know, the XML world. Uh, and JSON is fairly new in terms of, you know, the timescale because, uh, once JavaScript kind of came in, they realized that it's much easier way to exchange data than uh, XML is horrendous when it comes to security as well. Uh, not that JSON is any better, but you know it's fundamentally easier to understand. Um, so for for you know a lot of the more recent front end devs or you know full stack devs, uh, they never have to deal with XML. So because SAML kind of was born out of that. It's based on XML. There's, you know, uh, uh, public key, private key exchanges that happen. That's quite tedious to understand and get right as well, because uh, you want to verify that it truly came from, you know, Okta, the identity provider, and not somebody else trying to uh, sit in the middle and spoof the requests. Um, so that's 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 where SAML comes from, where it was kind of pretty much... Uh, uh, I've logged in. Here's a SAML response that you get that contains everything you need around the fact that Deepak actually logged in. And if you are implementing this protocol, then you have to go and you know figure out how to um, deserialize that, do all the signature verification, and then find my profile in there and say, okay, now I'm certain that this is a legitimate login and I can uh, use Deepak's profile. Uh, so that's the big ball of wax we simplify and demystify we we effectively have layered OAuth 2.0 and open connect on top of this so we look and feel like you know OAuth 2.0 and open id connect and we'll translate underneath the right set of saml primitives so for a developer coming in they don't have to you know dive deep into how exactly saml and that that world works um as long as they get the high-level understanding of that, and we give them, you know, all the steps to kind of integrate, um, takes away a huge burden for them uh, in having to understand what this protocol is all about, how the single sign-on actually happens, what are all the different uh, tweaks that you can have within that. Um, so that's you know that's the big uh, value add we provide predominantly around you know the implementation there so you can lift and shift our building block and you've got all of that without having to go in and re-implement the protocol on your own
0: yeah so if you use the boxy proxy so to speak you yeah. don't have to <laughs> ever worry about SAML, right you're just like Correct. i took oidc or i took uh OAuth two, was and boxy the boxy proxy will sort out the rest
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's correct.
0: Because that ball of wax, as you mentioned, can get even more complex because this thing, there's this thing called Saml federation that some people think they need, but they might not need it. So what in the world is Saml federation and when would you even need that?
1: So Saml so federation, again, uh, same thing, right? You have the identity provider side, you've got the service provider side. Uh, So what happened with SAML was, uh, this was before, you know, um, actually at that point, it was really just Microsoft, the big, you know, the big identity provider uh, with uh, what is now become their more legacy product, the Active Directory. Uh, So that's how kind of, you know, the whole Active Directory is a place where you store all employees data and then they had a way to exchange that with other systems. So coming back to, you know, the identity providers themselves. So you had, uh, you had Microsoft now, then, um, then you had, you know, universities, uh, societies kind of start to use it as well. Um, more in the B2B context, but you know, then they had B2C customers on the other side. So what they quickly realized, for example, universities is, um, it's fine for, for example, uh, Stanford as an identity provider, right? For all their, um, student and staff related services. But why just that you maybe had, uh, you know, all the Ivy leagues come together. And if you had an account in one, did you have to go and create another account with, uh, with either, uh, uh you know, uh, an affiliated university or a bunch of, you know, alliance, uh, you know, so kind of like a consortium that you form. So that was the idea around SAML Federation that if, you've, if you have identity in one of these identity providers, you can then exchange that within the SAML Federation to then get access to, let's say, MIT, right, for example, transfer to MIT. Uh, let's say they decided to get together and put all their courses together. So that was the idea around, you know, Samuel Federation, and this, you know, translates to, for example, um, Chemical Society. Uh, they have all the literature around, you know, chemistry, and they want to share that between these various societies. A uh, lot of them, not for profit as well, so you know, it kind of made sense to to get together. So that's where, you know, Samuel Federation kind of comes in. Uh, Today, that's typically where the larger networks exist. You've got like the universities, uh, you know, various uh, scientific societies, uh, like like the chemical society that I mentioned. Uh, So that's kind of, you know, what SAML Federation is about. It's like an umbrella where multiple uh, identity providers come together and look like one single unified uh, provider. And you can have access to one of them and get access to everybody else on the back of the SAML Federation. And from a technical standpoint, what that means is you're speaking the SAML protocol to multiple places from one place. Uh, So that's what SAML Federation is all about, where you have a system that speaks SAML, and you are then effectively multiplexing that, um, you know, one-to-end relation, right? Saying now I can take that and then uh, speak Saml to everybody else on the other side, and they understand each other. So the, the method of exchange is still Saml, but you're trusting that federation in the middle. Uh, so that's what that's what Saml federation is all about. And it's a uh, I, you know, as a startup, you should not have to encounter this except you know very bespoke systems. We see this all the time in more legacy and you know enterprise systems, where something was built you know fifteen twenty years ago, uh, still very much in use. Only speaks Saml, but they cannot, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, cannot modify it to modernize it. So then, uh, Saml federation is a great way to kind of come in then because. Not just you. You can speak anything. You can translate it to anything on the other side. So, for example, our Saml federation feature is all about speaking Saml on one side and translating it to more modern OAuth 2.0 or OpenID Connect on the other side. Um, so that's what broadly Saml federation is. Uh, I'd be very surprised as a startup if you needed it. Uh, as but as a as a scale up as a enterprise you probably have systems that you deal with uh, which can only do SAML or more older protocols. Uh, LDAP, for example, right? That's that's a very old protocol as well. That's based on you know the Active Directory, but uh, very different protocol.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Um, I was wondering like you mentioned directory a couple of times, like Active Directory. So one of the th- products that sits within boxy is SSO, but then there's also directory sync so where how do how do these two relate to one another
1: yeah so so i mean directory comes from uh, effectively uh, you know a, f- a phone directory right that's kind of the uh, and you, you you would have seen this in the in the yahoo context as well they organized everything as uh, directories before Kind of Google came about and said, hey, "You don't really need to organize anything. You just need to understand it, and then you know you go and find it." Uh, so that's what you know. The these things are Active Directory directory sync is all about uh, a directory that exists somewhere, which is with a single sign-on identity provider like Okta, for example, and because they have a directory of employees, customers, uh, whatever that that directory happens to be. Um, and directory sync is simply a way to synchronize that with your application. So, for example, let's say CRM.com, again, as the example, you're a CRM company. Um, You don't want the entire organization on there. You probably want the sales and marketing team. So directory sync is a way to say, okay, but now within sales and marketing, people come and go. You're a big company, so... Uh, how do you better onboard them into your web applications, right? Into your vendors that you have. So directory sync is very complementary to single sign-on, where you get events that you know Deepak joined an organization and is part of the sales team, and uscrm.com CRM.com can now decide why don't I provision an account for Deepak because he's very likely to get access and join. So that's that's what directory sync is all about. Again, you know, there is permissions and access control on top, so you only get the data when the admin wants you to get it. So it's fully under the control of the enterprise. Uh, but that's what directory sync is all about: taking, uh, you know, a directory copy somewhere that exists as point of truth in this case, Octa uh, or Azure, and then kind of synchronizing some of the metadata there and saying okay now i know deepak has joined i can pre-provision or uh you know um, allow at the same time uh, deprovisioning as well right if deepak leaves you don't want to leave it behind so then you can have uh you know your process around what to do when somebody leaves the the organization and what should happen to all their access and data on the third-party system uh, so that's fundamentally what directory sync is at a, at a high level.
0: Okay, yeah. So um, talking about that, so now the product as it is today, like, if I if I look at the SaaS one, for example, um, you've got your SSO, you've got directory sync, um, you've got these magic links, but then you've also got just audit logs to some t- some extent. I think that is known on GitHub as retraced. Um, now, we... There's also a package on NPM published called Jackson. So this is a lot of different ways you can consume all of these different services. So now you could use the NPM package. You could self-host the entire thing, which then also includes an admin portal, or you could come to Boxy and say, you know what, you just deal with all of this, like, and I'm just gonna pay you a per month for this SaaS product that you offer. So this is a lot. So I, I don't want you to necessarily dig into all the, the nitty gritty details of all of this, but like what is the key differentiating features or aspects from, if you start with the NPM package, you go to self host and then you go to SAS.
1: Yeah. So all these are just different flavors to allow flexibility of deployment, right. Uh, including SAS, right. Which is basically we manage everything. Uh, it's just very simply um sign up for an account get an API key and you're up and running so it doesn't come with any of the operational uh, complexity around self hosting or anything like that so um, so that's you know that was kind of the we obviously built it as you know our uh, users and customers kind of wanted uh, different ways to deploy this um, self hosting take the take our service it's available as docker container as well. Uh, traditional self-hosting, right? Put it wherever your infrastructure is, and you start talking to it with APIs. You get an admin portal as well as you mentioned, so some of the administrative things are easier there. Um, we also realized that early stage startups didn't want to manage because they were pretty much a monolith. Right? You don't want another service somewhere. Um, for them, we have the uh, a way to embed us if you're using JavaScript or TypeScript. So that's how the NPM kind of came about. So just all different ways to Then there, they just include us like a library and then uh, we basically get embedded with their service so they don't need to have anything else additional to their own service. Uh, But that also means there's a little bit more complexity in the implementation there, whereas it's very straightforward with the service. And now with SAS, of course, you know, we. Uh, we take on all of that complexity, so all you get to do is, you know, get an API key and you're up and running. So just different layers of both, uh, you know, ease of operations versus how much level of control you want to have over your data. Um, so that's pretty much, you know, all the different kinds of deployment options we have. Uh, and for that reason, right, we saw that different people wanted to do it differently, some uh, eventually more from one to the other, but we wanted to give them that flexibility of choosing how they wanted to deploy us.
0: Yeah. Well, that's obviously where the open source thing comes in. Like, If you didn't have that, you wouldn't have necessarily be able to to, uh, afford this complexity easily. It would be complex to do that, yeah. Basically, you'd have to charge for literally everything. You'd have to charge even for the NPN package because you'd have to do some kind of support if you want to give that. It's just another thing that you as a company now have to do. Exactly,
1: but because we yeah. have this
0: open source core, you could say that, no, but you know, here's this thing, here's this. And whenever you're ready to like say, we don't want to run this infrastructure ourselves or embedding it with a module is just too complex for us. It, like 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 you said, one of the things that Boxy tries to do is say, all the SAML stuff, all this single sign-on business, directory sync, all this, this is most likely not the product you're building. You're probably building a CRM or you're building cal.com or something. So you don't want to spend engineering effort, time, and cost on this. Let us do that. And you build a great calendaring system or whatever it might be.
1: Exactly. And we, we use this all the time, right? I mean, I'm a big Woody Allen fan as well. Uh, whatever works. So you know, we we tell them that hey, you know, first this one is to see what where you are and what's the quickest way for you to get onboarded with this. Uh, because a lot of them come to us saying, you know, we've got a we need a pilot, uh, we've got a pilot coming up, but we need single sign-on, right? So uh, we don't want to complicate it further for them by saying this is the only way you can now integrate us. So we've had a lot of them come in just embed the NPM and then come back later and say, okay, now we're seeing more traction there. Now the admin portal makes a lot of sense uh, and then see if, you know, we can bridge them over, right? So that's how, um, and that's very intentional. We want them to make it work quickly and then they have various options to kind of branch out to as they as they scale themselves.
0: Yeah, awesome. So So essentially it helps somebody get to their MVP quicker as well by having these options.
1: Exactly, that's correct, yeah. Uh, They're enterprise MVP, right? Uh, So there's, you know, because they've kind of already have an MVP that they know works well, but now, you know, with the enterprise bells and whistles on top, they want to make sure. Uh, And again, we tell them, right, don't, you know, don't spend too much time here. The, The key is to get that deal, make sure that works well for you and then see if you can repeat that, so. Um, that's why you know all the other tooling will help them. But if they're at one, then it's, uh, it does. There's no need to optimize, right? As soon as they get to ten, then that's when they That's why we have all these setup links and additional things to ease out the operations around it.
0: With the SaaS out there now. Um... And like you mentioned, there's the Privacy Vault that's starting to to take shape. Um, audit Logs is something that's also very much trying, starting to take shape. I mean, it's inside the SaaS product to some extent already. Um, yeah. What's on the roadmap for Boxy in 2024? Like around the SaaS product, but then also like Privacy Vault. How does this fit into it? And what is the problem that, that that's trying to solve?
1: So, so our entire you know, sort of vision is around giving... Uh, you know, developers, and in the future, you know, security professionals, all the security building blocks they need to, um, to make their product more secure, right? So that's kind of pretty much the only thing we're, we're focused on at the moment. Um, and what that means is, you know, like today you see a lot of point, these point solutions uh, that are starting to come together as a more unified platform as we kind of grow as well. Uh, and, you know, fundamentally what it's all about is from a, for us from a product roadmap is obviously get the point solutions to work well for them uh, and then start to see how, you know, they can come, uh, they can get unified as one uh, because they're all interrelated. You know, you've got your enterprise single sign-on which is related to directory sync, how it logs is about all the security events, but Broadly speaking, that's effectively compliance, security itself, of course. You know because you need to look at internal security as well, uh, and more recently privacy. So we call that the you know three pillars of uh, your know, verticals we're looking at. They're all interrelated, of course. Uh, underlying theme is security. Otherwise, you know nobody needs to do this. Uh, compliance comes in because you know you're either in a regulatory world or have a compliance framework. Uh, and in the B two B world, you know most have to do this. Uh, that could be an ISO twenty seven thousand one or you know SOC two or any of those sort of broad uh, infosec compliance frameworks. Um, and then privacy now you know it's it's no longer it's it's becoming table stakes, right? Uh, but still very hard to fully map out and understand what you need to do as a company, depending on your stage, uh, and what actually goes into your product. So that's the bigger piece we're solving uh, on the back of the privacy world, which is fundamentally about, uh, you know, you're building a your product because you're collecting a lot of customer data and then utilizing that customer data in, in various ways. But at the same time, you want to make sure you safeguard it, you give it all the right attention. Um, and that's what, you know, the world is all about. How do you add those additional layers to secure it? Uh, if somebody were to hack you, and we always tell our you know prospects and customers, right, the mindset should be that uh, you can truly never fully safeguard a system today. Uh, you know there's application errors there's vulnerabilities in all the you know your tech stack is quite complex today right uh, could be in the web framework could be in you know the the libraries you use underneath could be in the infrastructure that you're hosted in so there's different layers you know this there's always something that's going to happen so your your fundamental perspective needs to shift from you um, how do I not get hacked to what happens if I were to get hacked and how can I get more secure, assuming that somebody gets into my systems. So that's what, you know, all our products, uh, the underlying theme is all about. Obviously enterprises want a lot of this because it kind of ties back into compliance and security um but now privacy is just another angle to that saying okay all this customer data how are you supposed to responsibly handle it what are the extra measures you need to take and also gives you the the compliance into that itself right let's say you have to comply with gdpr um that gives you all the building blocks there it gets audited so you now have proof that you did everything, you've got to do something called privacy by design. Uh, so our architecture kind of forces you to think about that and think about where data goes. So so that's, you know, that's broadly the three um, topics we're dealing with um, and ensuring that our product map, road map is a kind of with with solving problems in this space. Um, so yeah, so in that sense the privacy vault is a new product that's coming out later. Um, again, as we, as we tell our customers <clears throat> there's a right time to do it. So um, th- th- that's the thing about security right delicate balance between you. ideally everything needs to be done on day one, but practically it's just not possible. So uh, we also talk a lot about you know uh, MVSP or minimum viable, secure product um, and there's a very good initiative uh, mvsp.org, from uh, Google security Scorecard and a bunch of you know uh, very cool companies we're part of that consortium as well uh, and that's that's their this one right which is a very practical way to approach security. They're saying we know you can't do everything but you need to have a baseline in place and start from there. So MVSP is a great way to kind of implement that stepping stone towards uh, other broader frameworks like ISO 27001, SOC 2. So uh, we, yeah, that, that's a big, that, that's uh, that's something we're very passionate about as well, that initiative. Because it it's it's a good balance of uh, when you need to do that, what you can put in place um, as a foundation. And then once you do it, it's iterative, right? Like, like everything we built today. And that's the way it should be. You put that in place and you start to iterate over it and see which aspects of that MVSP gives you a better um, uh, value for your company, for your vertical, for your product. And then take it from there. Uh, And that's the way we're building our products as well. You know, seems quite open-ended, but actually when you come down to it, we've figured out a whole bunch, solved a whole bunch of common problems that you would encounter. And then you can layer your logic on top of all of that.
0: I forgot about the MVSP It's a good thing you brought that up because that, that is a great initiative.
1: It, it, absolutely. I think it's uh, because, you know, it's, it's uh, obviously the, the way things work is you have to make something work before you know you, you put more resources into it. And uh, once you make it work, only then do you start thinking about, can I make it more secure? Uh, Actually, even before you make it more secure, you're saying, uh, can I actually improve everything that I did? Uh, And then you kind of come to security, right? So, and this is kind of, you know, forcing that uh, shift towards the left, which is as early as possible. But that will take some time, right? You know, everyone wants to do that in an ideal world, but there's a whole bunch of uh, practical issues that kind of block that. But If you then have the building blocks around it, then it makes it a lot easier uh, than having to, you know, go and figure all of that out and think about the complexities there and then layer that in. So that's that's sort of our uh, approach to this where we're saying we've figured a lot of this out. Most of it applies to you. So why don't you have a look at how to do that?
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's also a good a good point to to pivot to the final things, which is how can people get involved with Boxy on the open source side, and then how can people find out more about Boxy, figure out if this is what they actually never knew they needed, and then how do we go from there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we uh, as I mentioned, you know, we we love open source, we love contributions. Um, we we try and make it as easy as possible to kind of come in and be useful. Um, those using our product already kind of do this, but for someone new coming in who's interested in uh, developer security in general, I think we're a good community to kind of join in and start looking at ways to contribute. Uh, we even have a very generic uh, SaaS starter kit, which is kind of the uh, a very easy product to jump into if you want to contribute. It's it's all about uh, giving the building blocks to start us or seed a SaaS application. Uh, but we've gone you know one step beyond. It has you know all the, your traditional authentication, authorization, invitations, uh, grouping by organizations, teams, etc. But you also get the enterprise features in there if you ever had to then expand out. So that was a very good way for us to showcase, you know, not just all our enterprise readiness products, but also, um, you know, give people a way to start, not for, you know, not have to rebuild everything from scratch uh, based on next.js, you know, very modern framework. So we uh, try to keep up with um, all the interesting happenings there but uh, but we're always open to contribution so that's a great place to start uh, and of course our you know other products as well more specialized but uh, it's a great way to understand this the security protocols underneath uh, everything we do is you know s- standard space so we don't try to reinvent anything very intentionally uh, so it's a great way to kind of come in and understand what the industry best practices are and um, not just build your own knowledge, but also then contribute back on on the on the back of you know various integrations we'll need examples etc. as well. So it doesn't have to necessarily be in the core core, but you know all the periphery around it.
0: Yeah, and the boxy so the boxy HQ SaaS offering is built on top of the SaaS stacky, right?
1: Exactly. So we we have our the open source core products as well, of course, running as services, and then SAS starter kit with our additional business logic on top talks to those services, and that's how we've kind of uh, it's true dogfooding, right? We're using our own products. That's how we're able to evolve it as well. Um, so, so that's a you know, and we invite the community that way as well, right? So we've had a lot of contributions because people picked it up, realized they didn't have something, and then you know, kind of came back with with a PR to add
0: that in yeah yeah amazing great stuff thanks so much deepak this is very enlightening there's a lot to to take in here i hope this is going to demystify a bunch of stuff for people and they'll see like the role the box is going to play and how it empowers startups. I think it's, it's, it's an incredible thing. Like um, I just spoke to somebody the other day who has a startup called Open Sourced and they kind of wanted to go the enterprise way, but they didn't know Boxy existed and they thought the only alternative was very, very expensive. Uh, let's call it competitors in the market. That's also proprietary. And so when they discovered Boxy, they were like, oh my goodness, this not only allows me to go after the enterprise customers, but it allows me to also contribute back to something, so it's just this beautiful, like, circle of, of effects.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, and we love helping startups as well, right? I mean, we we are one as well, and we've kind of done this over and over again. So, uh, if you are a startup, even if you don't need this immediately, you know, will be great to join our community. Will at some point, if you are any thinking of enterprise anywhere, at some point you would do this. So, good way to come and then preempt some of the things that. We will have to eventually do uh, and yeah we, we just you know we just share a lot of knowledge around we've done all of this before enterprise sales and you know we can help with a lot of the soft aspects as well wherever we can so um, yeah that's no, uh, we love startups
0: amazing thanks so much Deepak uh, it was great Thank speaking you. to you and all of the best of boxing
1: same here pleasure thanks a lot bye bye
0: Thank you for listening to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have something to add? Continue the conversation on GitHub and join the community on Slack. Until the next one, keep all, all the, the things, things open. Things. <laughs>